Good afternoon to all of you. It's good to be together and to have the opportunity to actually open up God's inspired and fallible Word of God. There is, there's, there's nothing else in this world that is living and active like this book, the Holy Bible, which is inspired from God. And what a blessing it is to actually come to a section that has several uh, exhortations for us as a church. We are taking a brief break from the book of Hebrews, um, working our way through Hebrews just to focus on Romans 12, just for four weeks. This is the third week. I'm calling it a summer challenge that we would all be challenged to have a sacrificial living type of attitude, that we would lay ourselves down for the Lord. It's a good time to examine ourselves. Where are we at in our walk? We've just come through, what, a year and a half of COVID. We've been able to refocus and learn a lot of things about what's really important in our lives. What does God really want from us? What does God want from you? And what should your attitude be not only to God, but also one another, speaking primarily to the members of this church? So it's a time to examine ourselves. And I would just encourage you today as we go through this simple text of Scripture uh, to examine yourselves. In the Valley of Vision, there's a collection of Puritan prayers, and, and this is one of my favorites. It says that, well, this is just a, a brief section of it. O Lord, length of days does not profit me, except the days are passed in Thy presence, in Thy service, to Thy glory. Give me a grace that proceeds and follows and guides and sustains and sanctifies and aids me every hour that I may not be one moment apart from You, but rely wholly on Thy Spirit to supply every thought and to speak every word and to direct every step. That's a prayer that you could pray every day for yourself, really, right? I mean, to examine yourself and, and to draw near to Him. What types of things are, are worthy to set is a new goal for us as a church, learning what we're learning from Romans chapter 12, sacrificial living, using our spiritual gifts, even today, a sincere love being devoted to one another and brotherly love, that we might better glorify Him and enjoy Him all the more. Our text today says much about this. How do we treat each other? Do we really feel like we need each other? Or is it okay to just kind of have that solo Christianity show up for an hour and then you just go your own way? I submit to you, we need each other. Look at the early church in prayer meeting. We, we looked at Acts chapter 2 and, 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 and how the church functioned and they had all things in common and they were of one mind. They were unified. They were on the same page. They were committed to each other. Romans 12.9 begins with, let love be without hypocrisy. And, and really, love is so important. It's such an important concept to, to get in the next chapter, in chapter 13 and verse 8, Paul will say, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Jesus himself in in Matthew 22, or we could even look at Luke 10, but I already have these verses, um, says this, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. So we really owe love to God first, as Charlie indicated when he was reading the passage of Scripture there. That we love this God because He's created all things, because He's even created me and given me life. His common grace, even if you're outside of Christ, His common grace that you have the sun on your skin and the rain and the taste of food and all the good things in this world. But especially those of us who are in Christ, He set His eternal love upon us. So we respond and we love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But then He goes on to say, this is the greatest and the foremost commandment. But the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Who is my neighbor? It's the mailman that drops off your mail. It's, I would say, the milkman, but they don't deliver milk anymore, right? In other words, it's, it's all these people, your barber, um, your teacher, young people, right? Um, you know, your, your neighbor, all, all of this. The neighbor is encompassed in all these different things, even the Mormon that comes and knocks at your door. Now we read in Luke chapter 10, and the question really, we should have read verse 29, the question was put to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's a very important concept because that's what leads Jesus to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in verse 31 to 33, we see a man was uh, beaten by robbers, fell among robbers. A priest passes by, he passes by on the other side because, I mean, he can't get himself dirty. A Levite does the same thing, but then the Samaritan comes, and what does it say? He felt compassion. Compassion is down in the bowels where you feel it. There's, there's like a knot right there. And, and to feel compassion for something And of course, Jesus asked, which of these proved to be a neighbor, right? Just passing by, ignoring a blind eye, that's not being a neighbor the way Jesus has called us to be a neighbor. But it's to meet practical needs. And this is even a complete stranger. And it's very instructive for us. We are the family of God and fellow children of God. We must be devoted to each other. Because we have the same Heavenly Father, we're in the same family, even though we are all sinners. Well, let's read our passage if we go to Romans 12, if you haven't yet. And we're going to read verses 9 to 13. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and practicing hospitality. Father, we do ask that not only that we would understand these concepts in our minds, but Lord, that you would drive them into our hearts, that it would affect our behavior, that our love would be sincere one for another, that we would be active about these things. And so Lord, we ask 
indeed, that your spirit would convict where that is needed, that it would encourage where that is appropriate, and to the end, Lord, that we would become more and more like Christ, and that we as a church would be more and more Christ-like. We ask it in his precious name. Amen. Well, you remember the chapter began, by the way, Romans 12, 1, there's a big shift. The doctrinal section was those first 11 chapters, and Romans 1 exhorts us, what's the motive? By the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. And so the motivation is the very mercies of God. It's a basis for our voluntarily offering of ourselves to sacrificial living. It's a response of gratitude is required in view of God's great mercies. And then he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. There are two imperatives. So don't be pressed into the world's mold of what our culture tells you what you should do and what you should look like, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? And, And that transformed is where we get metamorphosis, right? That caterpillar turns into a butterfly. It's a metamorphosis. And, and, and that's what we are called to do. 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about this, that being transformed from our former self and conformed into the image of Christ. Verses 3-8, to eight, we looked at last time, and, and it's really the, the list of spiritual gifts there and how God works in the body of Christ. And verse 3 is really, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought to. So it's a call to what? Humility. Think that you've got all these gifts and you're the, you're the greatest gift to the, to the church of Christ. But no, to not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to have sound judgment. And then that beautiful picture in 4 and 5 that though there's many members, but one body. And so one body of Christ and individual members of it. We all have unique spiritual gifts. And then verses 6 to 8, it's not an exhaustive list, but a selection of some of the spiritual gifts. So as we come today to these series of exhortations, some of these can be difficult. Uh, Loving one another with a sincere love, an unhypocritical love, being devoted to one another, giving preference and honor to one another, sharing with those who have need and giving of our resources can make us susceptible to being hurt. Right? The more you open yourselves up, the more vulnerable you become. In reality, when we open our hearts and our homes and, and even our very selves up, there's a bit of a risk involved with that because it makes us vulnerable. We want to be transparent. But Paul is, would say that that's exactly the way the church should be. Just as God designed the church as the primary place for the exercise of those spiritual gifts of which we looked at last week, so too in the context of the church. It's where many of these exhortations can be fulfilled. Now the structure in the original is really this um, general principle followed by a series of participle phrases which really serve as practical examples. They even have the force of an imperative um, even though they're not, it's, it's not in the imperative, but um, they, so, so really take them as commands. So think of this, let love be without hypocrisy, or let love be s- sincere, and then you've got abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. It's, it's a whole list, when I do the diagramming in the Greek, a whole list of participle phrases 
under the umbrella of let love be without hypocrisy. That's kind of the structure. Maybe that'll help. So we're going to take verse 9 as our first point. Two simple points. Is your love for the brethren genuine? And secondly, love must be practiced towards the brethren. So beginning in verse 9. There's a connection here to verse 8. Remember, look up there in verse 8, that last phrase, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. The one that shows mercy will also have love. And he says, let love be without hypocrisy. There's a, the article in front of it, which really has the force of let your love and your love and your love and your love be without hypocrisy. John writes in his first letter, little children, let us not love and in word and tongue, but in deed and truth, right? So without hypocrisy, what does that mean? It's without ulterior motives. It's not to exercise a bit of love here so that you might receive this back, right? It, it's, not, it's not any of that. It, it means with a true sincerity, whether it's to God, or in this context, to others, it is to be sincere. And next week, we'll even see as we finish the chapter, our love is to even be towards our enemies, which is very difficult as well. Although some would say that I can love my enemies, but it's those people in the church that are hard to love sometimes, right? <laughs> some people would say that. Hypocrisy is something altogether reap just horrible before the Lord. Matthew 23, 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Right? It's something that God disdains. The Pharisees appeared to be fine on the outside. Right? They had all the tassels and all the garb and they, they looked really fine on the outside. But Jesus says, inside is full of dead men's bones. The Christian's loving behavior should not be an acting the part or a, should have brought up a prop, a wearing of the mask, right? Like, look at this right here. And, and actually, this word has the idea of, of theater, right? You know, you'd hold up the different mask, right? And whether it's the big smiley one, right? Or, or the frowny, scary monster or whatever, and you switch the mask around, the idea is to hide what's really behind. So it's putting on a false exterior. Sadly, much of what masquerades love in the quote Christian community is laced with the arsenic of hypocrisy. Now, there may be little seeds of that in GBC, but I, I think GBC is to be committed or, or commended rather. Um, but we can always we can always grow in this. What does hypocrisy look like? How about acting like you really care about something when you really don't? You know, you you express you you try to. To, to bring a connection and connect to somebody that's opening up their heart and bearing burdens, but then you immediately forget about it and don't pray about it. That's hypocritical. How about it hides the hatred and resentment and bitterness that, that, that might be there. and Like Judas, who betrayed Jesus with a kiss. It's insincere or tainted motives to, you know, as I said earlier, to something in return, right? I'll give a little to get this return type of thing. You know, where there's a conflict and, and unforgiveness or forgiveness has been sought, but there's still some resentment festering 
expressed towards the other person. These things ought not to be. So let love be without hypocrisy. To put it positively, let it be sincere. Let it be real. But then he just rapid fires. Boom, 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 boom. Abhor what is evil. Hate what is evil. Love doesn't just overlook evil. We're called to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. And to abhor is to to hate. And in this case, to hate evil. Proverbs 6, 16, God hates wickedness. It says this, there are six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Now listen to these. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness that utters lies, and one who spreads strife among his brothers. Hate what is evil. When you hear the Lord's name taken in vain, maybe you're at the supermarket or on a construction site or whatever, does that do something to you? Does that that bother you? We we are certainly called to hate that. That's my Lord you're speaking of. The one who laid down His life and died for me and you're taking His name in vain. We should be repulsed when we see all manner of wickedness rather than what the Jews would like to do is desensitize you. right? So that we're not shocked anymore by the, the measure of the wickedness in our culture. Human trafficking. A wide open border, innocent children being forced to perform sex acts and other crude behavior. Yeah, I hate that. I'll tell you, I hate that. Sexual perversion that we see that's outside of God's design. Religious apostasy, you know, going through the, the, you know, false teaching, you might say. going through the, 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 the externals without any genuine heart, the false teaching to see that, that so many will follow certain religions, Hinduism. I mean, so many are just duped by that and blinded. Even Roman Catholicism, which, which I've said that there's no way you can be a Roman Catholic if you've read and understood the book of Hebrews, there's no way you can believe the sacrifice over and over and over and over, Right? How about corrupt governments and their wicked legislation? It's okay to hate that, right? We, we submit to our government to a certain point, right? But when there's wicked legislation that says, open up your wallet, I'm taking some of that money out in the name of taxes, and we're going to fund abortions with it. Yeah, that should make your blood boil, right? And that's what our government does, among many, many other things. The end of the book of Jude, it says, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So if we have a sincere love for others, we will, we will help keep them from evil. There's an application here to you parents, right? To put a protection, to not allow your children to be exposed to the vile wickedness that might be just a click away on the internet. To not put stumbling blocks in front of the brethren. True love does not lead others into sin. And you young people need to be careful with who you're listening to and who you're following and who you're believing, right? Avoid whatever is evil. Cling to whatever is good. And that's uh, the next phrase. Cling to what is good. 
This word I have here, stay glued to that which is good. Why would I use that term? The, the word actually means to glue together. Isn't that neat? Think of super glue. You ever, um, you know, trying to fix something and inevitably, anytime I open super glue, I get it on my fingers and it's like, oh, great. How am I going to get that apart, right? That's the idea is it's being glued to. It's the same word that, that Matthew records as Jesus saying when he says, you shall leave mother and father and be joined to his wife. It's a picture of that marriage covenant being joined together. It's a super glue type of thing. When you've been transformed by the renewing of your mind, you now have a bit of discernment to know what is good. You've got his revealed word, right? Which is clear. But you also are given some discernment with the Holy Spirit on the inside. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, a similar passage. Examine everything carefully. Examine carefully. Those are weighty words. Hold fast to that which is good. I think of the godly man in Psalm 1 where it says, his delight is in the what? Law of the Lord. That's his delight. And so for the the one that's been renewed and transformed, that has a sincere love, will cling to what is good. And Christian disciplines, such as reading your Bible and praying and serving in the church, become a delight rather than a burden. So, genuine love, that's our first point. Secondly, we have here verses 10 to 13. Love must be proven as it is practiced towards the brethren. I already mentioned several participle phrases here. It's sort of similar to Roman or 1 Corinthians 13, uh, the love chapter. You can read that later. But these are really an overflow from sacrificial living, those first couple of verses of the chapter here. It's an overflow from that. The duties we have one to another. Put it another way, it's the fruit of salvation. You're genuinely in Christ. You're going to demonstrate this kind of fruit. Love for God. Love for his people. Charles Spurgeon said this, Paul writes at full length upon the doctrines, but he is very concise and pithy upon the precepts. For things of daily practice need to be short and easy to remember. Let us learn each one of these weighty sentences by heart and put them all into practice. You see what he's saying there? The doctrines are long. and The doctrines are important. It's the foundation for which we actually have the precepts to live out, the practical Christian living. So first of all, verse 10, be devoted to one another and brotherly love. To, to be devoted, it's, it's, it speaks of a, a mutual love. It's a parental love for a child or a child's love for a parent. In that sense, it occurs only here and and for you, you, you certainly, I would ask you, do you love your parents? And of course you do. Um, you love your children, of course. This is a, a natural love. It's a kindred love. It, the, the word here represents Christians bound by a family tie. Like that hymn we like to sing, 359, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. It's that type of um, tie 
that members of the family of God should do everything in their power to remain fully devoted to one another with a genuine affection, right? Not a carnal affection, a genuine, unhypocritical love. Just as families need to spend time together, right? When you got mom and dad working and you got soccer and basketball and the family never sits down to eat one meal a week or maybe only one meal a week, what happens? The family becomes fractured. Families need to have time together to learn to love one another and to grow. So to the family of God. We need to have opportunities, many opportunities to be together one with another beyond just the Sunday morning worship service. We, we, we're bringing back our, our monthly fellowship meals. It's a good way to sit down with somebody that you, you, you don't previously have known or know well and to get to know them. We have several midweek groups, men's, women's, Bible studies. These are opportunities to get to know people so that you might love them better. We are to be loyal to one another, uh, dedicated for Christ's sake, irrespective of race, social differences, and economic standings, right? William Hendrickson says this, there is a sense in which believers should love everybody, including those who hate and persecute them. But tender, brotherly affection implying intimacy and understanding and spiritual unity is reserved for the inner circle, right? That extra close love. And that's exactly what Paul says in Galatians 6.10 where he says, let us do good to all people. And then what does he say? Especially those who are of the household of faith. Like, yes and amen, let's do good to all people, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Like any family including my own, there's going to be conflict and misunderstandings from time to time, and those need to be dealt with. But even in the context of a local church, there, there might be someone that gets their feelings hurt or disagreements and, um, and these kinds of things. And the solution is not to run from those problems, right? But to deal with them and to discuss those, to come once again to harmony and to be on the same page. The, the strength of our church family is based on the close relationships and truly loving one another, bearing true burdens. Our prayer meeting was a little smaller this, this week um, earlier, in, but we were able to bear one another's burdens. We were able to storm the throne of grace together as it were locked arm in arm like an offensive lineman that nothing can get through. What a blessing that is. Meeting each other's practical needs, as we'll discuss in a moment. De determining to use the means of grace to invest in building closer relationships. To get below the surface, not just the weather or the, whatever your sports team is, but for the sake of Christ and His glory, to get down, how can I really pray for you? What are you struggling with this week? Unlike a two-sided coin, the second half of verse 10 is important. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference, right? Give preference to one another in honor. Give preference in honor. Actually, the ESV has outdo one another in showing honor. The, the verb here actually has the idea of going on before as a guide or as an example. Humility is essential to genuine love. And giving preference to one another is, is one way of showing humility. 
Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, guard one another as more important than yourselves. There are those who show their devotion and honor to you. Do you know that? Even just some of you sitting here today who have gotten here early, who set up microphones, who have practiced the music all week long, who lead the worship, who play the piano, the nursery workers, even uh, the ladies that are in the nursery right now serving the children are, are, are missing out. I think they can hear my voice. We finally got a speaker going in there, um, but they're probably not because they're so busy running around taking care of them, changing diapers, the hospitality team, all of this. There, there's, a, there's, a showing, there's a love and a showing honor by serving and using those spiritual gifts of which we discussed last week. It's a privilege. It's a, they're not suffering. They're, they're privileged to serve like this. And you can encourage them by thanking them for their service. Well, we move to verse 11 here, and, and here you have a negative statement. Look at it. Not lagging behind in diligence. This general warning about really being lazy, it's, it's really an exhortation against laziness, followed by seven positive exhortations down through verse 13. And it, it has the idea of not lagging behind. It's not uh, it's being slothful or lazy in regards of diligence, right? Diligence, spude is the original. Remember the ministry in India, spudazo, the verb form, uh, is diligent, going after it, right? It's active. It's, it's like a taxi cab that's fast in New York City. You know, it's, it's being diligent. It's being fast. It's being on point. But what he's saying here, what he's warning, not lagging behind, not, not, not getting lazy, not getting slothful. To be slothful in regards to zeal, all sinners need to be reminded of this. We need to encourage one another. And then look what he says, but being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I don't think this is the Holy Spirit. It's our spirits inside being fervent, right? For the Lord. It, it, fervent has the idea of being hot and uh, boiling. It's that idea that the opposite of that would be cold and emotional, right? To be hot and boiling. Henry Martin, the great missionary of about 200 years ago, actually said he wanted to burn out for God. And at the encouragement of Charles Simeon, who was a pastor there, a longtime pastor in England, uh, he encouraged him that he should consider missions. And so he abandoned his intention and his studies at Cambridge to be a lawyer. He was excelling well, especially in mathematics. And instead, he went to India as a chaplain in the year 1806. In the six remaining years of his life, listen to what he's accomplished. He translated the New Testament into Hindi and Persian. He revised the Arabic translation of the New Testament. He translated the Psalter into Persian and the prayer book into Hindi. In 1811, after five years in India, he left for Persia, hoping to do further translation work there to improve the existing ones there in Arabia. But travel was rough in those days, and he died in transit. He died on October 16, 1812. 
He was fervent in spirit. He accomplished so much in such a short amount of time. And church history, time doesn't allow us to list all the other examples, the David Brainerds, the the, the, the Robert Murray McShanes of the world that, that died at age 29 but accomplished so much. Christopher Love, who died at 33 when he was beheaded in 1653, accomplished so much and produced so much good sermons and theological works. These men wanted to burn out for God. These men wanted to be boiling hot. They didn't want to be lukewarm. They realized the days are short to, be, to make use of one's life. Horatius Bonar, the pastor, Scottish pastor and hymn writer, says, "'Tis not for man to trifle. Life is brief and sin is here. Our age is but a falling leaf and a dropping tear. We have not time to sport away the hours. All must be earnest in a world like ours.'" Do you look at your life like that? Oh, how I wish I could just turn up the flame a little bit and get us all boiling. And then he says, "'Serving the Lord.'" Serving the Lord, John Murray says, has the dual purpose of stirring us up from that sloth and and getting us with the right zeal. It's said of Apollos in Acts 18.25, this man has been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. Apollos, recorded in Holy Scripture, he's fervent in spirit. Don't you want somebody to remember you like that? Like Apollos is remembered? What does your service to the Lord look like? Is it lagging behind? Is there a bit of sloth involved? Just examine yourself. I'm not here to point fingers. Uh, That's why we prayed and invited the Holy Spirit to bring conviction where that's needed and encouragement where that's needed. Well, verse 12, uh, persevere in tribulation through hope and prayer. And, And these are, I think, connected. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Three more lines here. Persecution is to be expected in the Christian life. Don't be shocked when somebody insults you. Don't be shocked by that. Paul speaks of affliction some 24 times throughout his letters. He told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 3.3, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know we have been destined for this. We've been destined for this. Philippians 1.29, even more clearly, for you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for His sake. That word granted, it's been graced to you to believe, but also to suffer. He says, be patient, and the I think the ESV and 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 here in uh, the NAS, persevering and trial. It's staying the course. It's the idea of pressure upon you, but you're bearing up under it. Right? That has that's the idea here. The 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 NET, the NET translation. I love to use as I'm studying and comparing. Says enduring and suffering. You see, the world laughs at this type of thing. Well, why not just lash back or? Or take out a knife or a gun and put them out or whatever, right? The world says fight back. Everyone will seek to take advantage of you if you walk in humility and in gentleness. But what does he say? Persevering in tribulation. No, it was Spurgeon that said, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. And so we persevere even if it takes a long time. 
And brethren, our joy today is founded upon our future hope. He says here, persevere, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. Hope is such an important concept to really fully understand. It's a, a confident expectation of a future fulfillment that yet awaits us. It's, it's God's promises coming to fruition in the future and time, but we own them as though they're so real they've already come to us later or earlier in Romans 8, 24. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly await for it. Robert Haldane, one of the Scottish commentators from the 1800s, has, I have this lengthy quote from him, it's too good to not include. Hope is founded on faith, and faith on the divine testimony. Hope then respects what God has declared in His Word. We are here exhorted to exercise hope with respect to future glory, and to rejoice in the contemplation of the objects of hope. What can be better calculated to promote our joy than the hope of obtaining blessings so glorious in the future world. Were this hope kept in lively exercise, it would raise believers above the fear of man and the concern for honors in this world. It would also enable them to despise the shame of the cross. The objects then of the believer's hope are the spiritual and celestial blessings which are yet future, but which his eyes should constantly be directed, and which are calculated to fill him with the greatest joy. You see how he ties that this, this hope, if hopes really come to fruition, it's, it's the best joy we could ever enjoy. And this hope also fuels us to be able to endure tribulations, difficulties. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God the Apostle Paul said. Think of the martyrs. Think of the persecutors. Think of those that were burned at the stake. How they could sing hymns of joy because nobody could take that joy that's based on that future hope of being with their Savior. No one can take that away from them. And so, they're able to endure. And then, at the end here, be devoted to prayer. The end of verse 12 here means to be busily engaged in. It's a different word than verse 10. Being devoted has more of that filial type of love. This is just really being busily and engaged in, being steadfast, being devoted in prayer. God uses the prayers of His people to encourage them and to motivate them to press on. The apostles were devoted to prayer. We saw that in Acts 2.42 this morning. We see that in Acts 6.4 where the first deacons were appointed and and, and the apostles say, but we will attend unto the ministry of the Word and prayer. Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. The hope fueled by prayer. Are you steadfast in prayer? Are you devoted to prayer? Private prayers in your own closet, as it were, Day by day, for the saints and for your family and interceding for one another. For the concerns of the church and the spread of the gospel and our outreach and our missionaries and 
that, that we might have a global perspective in our prayers and not be so narrow that we're only focusing on ourselves. There's practical ways you can do this with. We have a church directory that's in an app on the phone that you can flip up and see every family that's a member of this church with the kids' names uh, and all the names and the faces even. To put a face with it, it's a pictorial online directory. What a wonderful thing that is to use that and to just scroll through that and to pray. Instead of scrolling on Facebook, scroll through the church directory and pray for them often. And then praying together as a church. We begin our service in prayer. We have our pastoral prayer. Uh, Those preaching usually will pray at least once to begin or end the sermon with. And then we have prayer meetings. We have other opportunities. Every time we gather, we... Prayer is a part of what we do and who we are to be devoted to that. Well, verse 13 puts feet to the mandate of practical love. Look at it. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. It's sharing with the saints those who have need. In need, that is, those who are lacking something for their livelihood. Paul says in 1 Timothy 16, instruct them to be good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. To contribute. Has the, the, the word here where it says contributing to the needs of the saints is, is where we get the word koinonia. It's the same root, right? Which is that fellowship, that common sharing, that communion that we enjoy. This particular word was used of Greek marriage contracts by which the wife and the husband would agree to joint participation in the necessities of life. And here, it's, it's taking an interest in, it's sharing, it's meeting practical material needs like food, shelter, and clothing, and these types of things. And, and again, GBC is to be commended. We, there's always room for growth, but when somebody needs a ride to a doctor, or somebody needs groceries, or or helping out the military-wise while their husbands are away, changing out hot water heaters in those situations, helping the elderly, uh, helping with benevolence, those who are unemployed for a prolonged amount of time. These are are things that we are called to do. It's, It's who we are, contributing to the needs of the saints. Remember the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite passed by on the other side. But biblical Christianity knows nothing of that indifference, right? The Samaritan moved with compassion, used his own resources, and went and met the needs there, proving to love his neighbor. And then finally, eagerly pursue hospitality. Why would I have that as a sub-point here? Um, Because the word actually has the idea of pursuing after it's a word that's used sometimes in, in the Greek as, as persecuting, which means to run after. And so it, it carries the idea that we are to, in haste, pursue something. And that doesn't mean with your cell phone waiting for someone to call you, does it? Gosh, nobody's invited me over. It's been six months. I'm still waiting for the phone to ring. I'll wait another six months. And then after a year, wait a minute. I'm the one that should be dialing and pursuing and inviting people in and meeting needs. The original word has the idea of loving strangers, and we often think hospitality is 
a meal, maybe, a Sunday meal. We hope to have hospitality at our home next week. But, uh, the, you know, it, but it's more the meeting of uh, just a meal. Oftentimes, at least in the first century, the idea of overnight. As Christians would travel, it was unsafe to stay in the inns that were filled with prostitution and robbers and these types of things. And so it should mean both of those. Hospitality can be defined, I forget which commentator put it like this, but the process by means of which an outsider's status is changed from stranger to a guest. Right? And because it literally means loving strangers. And this is actually a requirement in the elder qualifications. Elders must be hospitable. But all believers are encouraged to do this. Uh, 1 Peter 4.9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Isn't that funny how Peter puts that there? You know, what, what does a complaint look like? Oh, I guess. I was hoping to just, you know, whatever, relax or watch the football game or do whatever. Well, I guess we can have them over. I hope their kids don't make too much of a mess. That's complaint, <laughs> right? So, having uh, being hospitable to one another cheerfully. And we're to practice it. That's the idea, to pursue it, practicing hospitality. You know, the, the Padres, uh, the Major League Baseball, practice is not optional. Tatis Jr. and and Will Myers can't just show up to the games and expect to slam home runs. There's practice that's involved. And we too are to pursue hospitality. That's another way we can build close relationships and get to know people. Henry Smith, old-time commentator, said this, Great boast and small roast make unsavory mouths. So if you're like skimping, if you go to Aaron's house, he doesn't skimp. It's a it's a it's it's a boast and a, a big roast usually, right? So <laughs> so practicing hospitality. I hope you've seen, brethren, that how this just again in your framework. Okay, let love be sincere. What does it look like? Boom, 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 boom. Every one of these um, participle phrases that should be taken as commands. So how? As we conclude, how are you doing with these exhortations? Loving, sincerely, honoring others, serving, zeal, being devoted to one another, meeting practical needs, hospitality. Challenge yourself this week to just read this short passage. Put it on an index card and put it in the mirror in your bathroom or on your dashboard and just read over it. and start, Just get it running through your body so you're thinking about these things and examining yourself. And if you find that you're lazy and dull, lacking the love needed to obey, the the key is not to try harder. I'm just going to have to try harder. You know what the key is? Is to see the Lord Jesus Christ in a new light. He who though He was rich became poor for your sakes that that you might become rich. You need to see Christ in a new light. And I owe Him my all. My life, my all. And when you get that concept in your mind fixed, these things aren't that difficult to do in response, right? Because this is for the body of Christ. Others whom Christ has died for, I'm called to love in this way. So the key is not to try harder. Be enamored for Christ's work on your behalf. To understand more fully what He has done, go to the cross in faith. This will fuel more sincere love 
for the people of God and dedication to His service. Secondly, our Lord Jesus Christ has demonstrated true love. He loved us even when we were alienated from Him. Romans 5.8 He's proven the sincerity of His love. Let love be without hypocrisy. How much more sincere can you get to lay down your life for your friends? To lay down your life for the sheep. John puts it like this in his Gospel, chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. It's action. It's not just words. And that's why we our weekly observance of the Lord's Supper, which we had earlier, what, what a glorious thing it is to remember that Christ has laid down His life for us. Have you tasted of this sincere love? We're almost to Hebrews 12 when we get back into it. And it says, For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. And if you're here today and you have not experienced the love of God, there's no way you can obey these things. There's no way you can fulfill these things. Oh, you could actually. You could do let love be with hypocrisy and then just try to make it all look good, right? But there's no way. If your heart's not changed, He offers real love to you. It's the real deal. But you have to repent of your sins and turn to Him, admitting that He's the only way of salvation. And then as it says in in Romans 8, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor any, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, the great need, if you're outside of Christ, is to be converted, to humble yourself, to admit that you're a sinner, to embrace Jesus, who says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, that that you might realize that you've got no hope in saving yourself. It's not a matter of at the end of your life, you just kind of put your good works and your bad works and just kind of hope the good works outdo it. Because guess what? All of these things that you think are good works are actually liabilities that will land you deeper into hell. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling, said Augustus Top Lady in that wonderful hymn, Rock of Ages. Away with such silliness that your good works will earn you entrance into heaven it won't don't believe the lie of the devil you're really a good person no don't believe that you're a sinner you violated god's law and there's no hope of salvation apart from christ and a humble attitude that agrees but once you come to christ there are pleasures forever and fullness of joy May the Lord be pleased to work in each of us in these things. Father, we thank You for this time that we could look into Your Word. We thank You, O God, that we can trust it. We thank You that we can trust that You will give us the strength and ability to fulfill and to do these very things which we're called to do. We pray for us as a church, Lord, that You would help us to become more and more conformed to Christ, that these things would be more and more natural. We thank You for the many who do these things well and that are glaring good examples to many of us. 
Lord, we pray that you would continue to grow us. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.